we are continuing uh, with the story of Hezekiah. And I want to read to you tonight from Hezekiah, um, from Hezekiah, from Isaiah 38. And we're just going to read the first eight verses. And, uh, and we're going to save um, the writing of Hezekiah, which is absolutely beautiful um, for, for future weeks. So let's read the first eight verses and then we'll pray. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die and you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of Yahweh came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, and I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This then shall be the sign to you from Yahweh that Yahweh will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray tonight that you would bless our time, that you bless our study. Thank you for those who've come out in the midst of uh, tiredness at the end of a long day and I just pray that we would all be blessed for our desire to know you better, to study your word. And Lord, may this passage impact our hearts and may your Holy Spirit illuminate the words for us tonight that we might be changed, that we might be transformed. Amen. Okay, so chapter 38, we've dealt with chapter 36 and 37, we've seen the repentance of uh, Hezekiah when he sought help from the Egyptians to him then returning and trusting in the Lord. Now as we come to chapter 38, it's a bit of a twist as it were. It says in those days... And in those days, most uh, scholars at this point, looking at this passage in conjunction with the parallels in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, um, think that this is not necessarily chronological. And that perhaps, and, and more likely than not, that in fact what we're about to read tonight had happened previously. And that what happened in the previous chapters is something that only happened because of the extended time that Hezekiah was given here. So in other words, it's a bit like a prequel. It's a bit like you finish The Lord of the Rings and you go and read The Hobbit or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite likely, though not definitively, a going back in time. And, and that makes me question and wonder why Isaiah would have done it this way. And I think um, there are two reasons, though I'm... 
I'm not going to hang my hat on any of them particularly, but let me give you a couple of reasons. I think firstly, it kind of gives you an explanation of what has happened before. It gives you an explanation of what's happened before. It puts uh, meat on the bones, so to speak. And I think secondly, it means that the testimony of Hezekiah ends with the writing that he wrote, the song that he wrote on the completion of his healing. And it, it is, in, in essence, the best possible explanation for why he was able to do what happened in the previous chapters. So we've got a lot to look forward to with that, that song of Hezekiah. It really is magnificent. So we'll come to that uh, starting next week. But the reality is, is that Hezekiah um, was sick and he was at the point of death. This wasn't uh, a case of, um, you know, the, the sniffles, but that he was seriously uh, on, on the brink of death and there was concerns that he would, make, he, he would survive any longer. And... Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said... Now, when we've seen in the book of Isaiah, the kind of reference to Isaiah by name, and particularly you know, him, um, him being uh, the son of Amos and then him going off, we, we have a whole kind of new section. And I think that that, as much as anything, allows us to just see this as chronologically the beginning of that period. That here's Isaiah, and he comes in, and Isaiah says to him, Thus says Yahweh... And just to note, as we start with the Yahwehs, regulars will know when we come across the word Lord in capital letters in the English Bible, that that is letting us know that it is a rendering of the Hebrew Yahweh, the name of God. And so whenever I read out a passage, when I come to Lord, I say Yahweh. And it always strikes me when the name of God is repeated a lot of times in a passage. It always sticks out to me uh, audibly. And uh, this is clearly a passage where the name of God sticks out. It's mentioned a lot. And if that's the case, there's always a reason for it. And remember that the name of God, Exodus 33 and 34, is synonymous with the character of God, the attributes of God, and the glory of God. In other words, we're going to be seeing a whole bunch about the character of God in this passage before us. So thus says Yahweh, Set your house in order, for you shall die, and you shall not recover. In other words, God says to him, you need to get ready. You need to prepare. Make a will. Choose your heir. Hezekiah at this time did not have a son. And therefore, he would have to get an heir in place. Somebody from the house of David, obviously. Someone who is related in that regard, but not his own son. And he would need to make sure that a... um, Successor, that's the word I'm looking for. A successor is ready to take his place. If you've ever been in a church with a big name preacher who has gone through to the end of his life and no successor has been chosen, you may well be aware of the kind of conflicts and infighting and problems that can arise where a successor has not been chosen in advance. And so he is told, Your time is short, you need to get things ready, and you shall not recover from the sickness. At this point, Hezekiah turns his face to the wall. 
And he turns his face to the wall and he prays. Now, the reference here to facing the wall seems to be a, 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 a phrase that refers to his privacy. This isn't Hezekiah going and praying before the nation. This isn't Hezekiah going and asking for prayer on behalf of him. This is Hezekiah, a king, a man with great power, a man who is able to command people to do various things, and they will be done, who is left broken and alone before God. Who you are before God is ultimately who you are. In life, some people will be given wealth, some people will be given power, but ultimately we're people before God. And Hezekiah is confronted by God through the prophet. He's confronted with his frailty, with his humanity, with the brevity of life. We know from the parallel accounts in 1 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles that um, he was at this time, well, we know that when he died, he was 54. God, as we read already, is going to give him 15 more years. So he's 39 years old at this point. That's not that old. I, I have a, an old school friend whose younger brother died of lung cancer at the age of 39. And everyone was just shocked. It's just very young age for someone to pass from sickness. And yeah, life, life well, may well have been tougher then, but nonetheless, this would have been early, and he was a man who, who clearly wasn't ready to go, and he's left facing his frailty, and he's left dealing with the reality of death. And I think that one of the great challenges that we have in life as we get older is the impending reality of death. Unless we happen to be the generation that sees the return of Christ, where Christ comes for his church, and I, you know, as long as I've been around, I've known Christian pastors who all think that they're going to be in the generation. I've known many people who've thought they're not going to die, they're going to be the generation. Some would argue that the Apostle Paul thought that too, so maybe that goes back a long way. But nonetheless, unless we're that generation... We will die. We will die. And we have got to accept that. We have got to embrace that. And we need to be ready for that. I remember, um, uh, I think it was Arnold Fruchtenbaum talking about one of his um, mentors in the faith when he was younger. A man he really looked up to. And he went to visit this man when he was approaching death. And here was this great man of faith who taught him the Bible so well um, in previous years. And him just being very scared at death and being very unsure. And, and his faith being lacking. I hope and pray that that is not any of us that finds ourselves in that situation. You know, one of the things that we have discovered as we have had the reality of death imposed upon us. And the, the, the specifics of how serious we think COVID is or isn't, how great the threat is or isn't, how high the death rates are or aren't, is, is absolutely irrelevant. The, the, the fact remains that society has had the reality of death 
pushed in front of their noses against their will and have been forced to address it. Whether that was a, a, a real and valid threat and, you know, is, is by the by. The, the fact is that people have been forced to deal with it. And boy, have people not dealt with it well. The reality is, is that people have shown their utter fear of death. And sadly, that reaction has gone well into the church as well. And there has been, in the mainstream society, this mentality that we should do anything and everything that we can. And it has actually been said, word for word, in the, in the, from the mouths of more than several leaders throughout this country and around the world, that if these things, these protections, these mandates, save just one life, then they'll be worth it. Which is utterly ridiculous, because if we took that approach to automobiles and you know, driving on roads and dangerous jobs, then nothing would get done ever. It's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But there has been that kind of mentality, and that mentality has come into churches, and there has been in many people this presumption that if going to church in the midst of a pandemic means that people are going to die that wouldn't otherwise die, then clearly going to church in the midst of a pandemic has to be wrong. And lots of Christians have refuted that on the basis that really it's not such a bad pandemic or it's not a pandemic at all or, or you know, we're, we're not, we should, we're, it's not as bad as people are painting a picture of. That's irrelevant. The, the reality is this. If God says that we should not refrain from meeting together, if we understand that sanctification is something that happens not purely through the equipping of the word, but from the equipping of the word that then leads to ministry, and that as we minister one to another, that is how we corporately come to maturity, which Paul argues in Ephesians 4. If that's the case, then the reality is, are we prepared to go to our deaths in obedience of Jesus Christ? And I'm not suggesting that if we have to kind of close things up because there's just something really terrible and everyone's dropping like flies for a few weeks we closed it. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. Is the fear of death a reason that we shouldn't go to church? And if it is, why are we as Christians fearing death? I'm not saying we should be blasé about life. I'm not saying we should brush, brush aside, you know, you know, hey, we're Christians, let's go and run across the freeway or you know every when we'll do freeway ministry on Wednesdays at five let's run across the freeway and show how little we fear death that's not what I'm talking about but what I'm saying is this is that we of all people should be willing to say I will obey God and if death comes then death comes because we come from a long line of martyrs who have given their lives for the freedoms that we have to express our faith. I come, as you know, from not far outside of London in England. And you can go to the market in London and walk around. I remember going to, a, um, near, I think it's Smithfield Market in London, and walking around the corner with a friend of mine who had a church nearby. And he showed me the monument to those who have been burnt at the stake for their faith. Is it Kramer? Maybe it might have been Kramer. But it, it's... It's, it was just reality. 
And I think there's a lot of Christians today that say, well, you know what? If somebody said to me, you must deny Christ, and they put a gun to my head, then I wouldn't deny him, and blah, 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 blah. And you know, if it came to that, but are we prepared to risk our lives for Christ for something as boring and monotonous as simply reading our Bible, worshipping God, and going to church? That's, that's just the reality. And, and, and I, for one, have been forced to confront this. Confront the reality of death. And I think that my point as I try and bring us back to the text is that if you find yourself staring death in the face, if you find yourself in a situation where death is in front of you, there's you and God, that's it. You're facing a wall, so to speak. A dear friend of ours from England who was at our church there for a while and had, you know, was a significant part of our life for a few years. He just passed away this last week or so from colon cancer. And it's just, it's just the same thing. You know, he just, there he is and he has his faith in Christ. And I just, you know, I had a bit of contact with him in recent years, not so much, but he's, he's just confronted with, here you are, you've got, this, you've got this diagnosis and this is where you're heading. And of course, people will fight it, fight it, and then they fight, and the news isn't good, and then, then this creeping realization approaches. And ultimately, death leaves us alone before God. And I think one of the greatest blessings that any of one of us can have in life is to know that death is coming. Now, that might sound strange. I think a lot of people feel the opposite. A lot of people feel like, you know, when my time comes, I just want to, you know, fall asleep one night and I don't know anything about it, get struck by a bus, it's just, it's over in two seconds flat and I just, that's it, done. I don't want a long, slow, painful, you know, I don't, I don't want a long, painful, drawn out thing particularly, if, if I have a choice, please, Lord. But, but more to the point, I think that there is, there is a privilege in, in just being alive and conscious and alert and being aware my death is very close by how do I feel about that how sure is my faith where do I stand now looking at the text in Hezekiah when we're talking about chronology and we're talking about Hezekiah here is a man who's confronted and he does not want to go. There is no, seemingly no peacefulness in his condition. He begs God. And he says, please, O Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And he wept bitterly. Now, there's lots of little elements that we need to pick up here and pull up from previous chapters. But let's just look at this first as it stands. Hezekiah hears God's decree and begs God to change his mind. The one thing that the Bible is absolutely clear on is that we are entitled to do that. I don't have any problem at all with us upon a, any diagnosis of death or any terrible situation or terrible condition. For us, begging and pleading and weeping before God for him to change his mind. 
I think that in our Christian circles that we move in, where, where there is rightly uh, a rejection of the wholesale integration of psychology into the Christian faith, and where we tend to, to err more on the side of biblical counseling, I think that we are prone to being too quick to say to people things like, well, you're a Christian, you should be able to handle this. Or here's a few Bible verses, let's have a proper approach to this. The Bible knows nothing of this. And those of you who are regulars and have heard me bleat on and on about the, the ABCs of lament from the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture, we see similar elements here. That the first part of lament is our biblical right, nay, our biblical mandate, to acknowledge our pain, to acknowledge our pain brutally and honestly before a God who sees and hears our hearts before we even know our hearts. Nothing is hidden from him. And so it is perfectly right and appropriate and just for us to say to him, I'm not okay with this. I'm struggling with this. Please, God, I beg you, change your mind and change your heart. To do so is not unspiritual. To do so is not unbiblical. And to do so is something that is a path that is so well-worn and so well-trod that not just the psalmist and the saints of history, but even our Lord himself said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Bitter weeping is part and parcel of the Christian life. And the greatest part of that is that we have a God who cares that we weep before. And so we bring the things that cut and tear our hearts. There's things that cause us to, to weep internally. The things that cause us to feel pain that we often think could not or should not be expressed in church. These are the things that we must bring before God. And these are the things that I hope we're creating an environment in this church where they can be brought to church and where people can be honest and where people aren't so quick to correct and where people allow people to cry and allow people to moan and allow people to lament and acknowledge their pain without correction. And so Hezekiah wept bitterly. The word here implies weeping to the point of soreness. Some of you know what that kind of weeping feels like. The other thing to note from these verses is that when he cries out to God, he says to Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with our whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Now, this is not the uh, ramblings of a um, deceived man. When we look at some of the accounts of Hezekiah's life in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we see God giving the same sort of description. 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 2, concerning Hezekiah, who began to reign when he was 25 years old. He reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. That's your 54 that we mentioned earlier. And it says in verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that David, his father, his 
predecessor rather than literal father had done and then later on in uh, the end of his life and in fact that statement is one half of the sandwich the inclusio of the story of his life when we come to the end of his life in second chronicles 32 uh, read verses um, 32 um, let me have a look at the verses I think I've got them written down wrong. Maybe it's 30 or 31. Right. End of his life. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Ahoz, and the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers. And... Um, and buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did honour him at his death. No, not the verses. I've written them down wrong. I do apologise. Um, but I've probably got my Chronicles and Kings references. But at least the earlier one in Chronicles you can see that there is this, this reference. Um, do you know what? I've got the chapter written down wrong. There you go. <laughs> one, one chapter earlier. Second Chronicles 31. And verse 20. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all of Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before Yahweh his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, in an accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart, and he prospered. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Hezekiah is renowned and regarded as one who was faithful to God. Now, let me just simply say this. I think on the one hand, Hezekiah's weeping and mourning is natural. It's absolutely natural. And it is fair and it is fine that he acknowledges that. I think on the other hand, I think there is an indication in that that Hezekiah wasn't ready for death. I hope that doesn't sound contradictory. I hope that you can see the balance I'm trying to strike here. I think that we want to say to him, you can acknowledge this pain. There's nothing wrong with this. This is absolutely fine. But it, I still get the impression that he feels that this is not right and not the right time. And if the chronology that I'm presenting is correct, then it is clear that Hezekiah, a man of faith, a man who did what was right, that in, back in chapter 36, we find him compromising by trusting in the Egyptians. If that's the case then it was a, a blip in his life. It was, a, it was a, a stumbling in his life. And I would want to come to the conclusion here that part of what we see here in this latter chapter is that God had not finished with Hezekiah because he had work that he had to do through Hezekiah where Hezekiah could continue to serve him in faithfulness, to walk before him with a whole heart, to do what is good in his sight. But at the same time, that Hezekiah had work that God needed to do in him as well. That this was a man who was going to compromise and trust in the Egyptians rather than God. And God brought him through that so that he could learn to trust God more fully. Just like we see in the life of Abraham and others as well. And so, the... Um, 
the response, the response of, um, of, Hez- uh, of Yahweh to Hezekiah, verse 4, thus the Lord, word of Yahweh came to Isaiah, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says Yahweh, God of David, your father, I have heard your prayers, I have seen your tears, and behold, I will add 15 years to your life. First thing, quite obviously, that we take from this is that, humanly speaking, using what we call anthropomorphic terms, terms that we use of God that really, strictly speaking, aren't true of God, but are ways that we understand him. In in the way that we talk about the might of God, we say the mighty hand of God. Now, God the Father doesn't have a hand. He's spirit. So what do we mean when we say the mighty hand of God? We're just speaking of him in human terms to show his might. And I do feel it's somewhat a similar vein when we talk about God changing his mind. God always knew what he would do with Hezekiah. He always knew how Hezekiah would respond. But these things are done that we might understand. And what do we need to understand here is above all else this that God hears our prayers and that God changes the course of events in response to our prayers. I want to say this really clearly and I want us to really take this home if nothing else today. When Hezekiah is confronted with his death, when he is left facing a war, when he is in that place of privacy, what often the saints before us have called the prayer closet. That place that you go to, to be alone with God. For some of you, it might be up in the mountains or out on the trails. For some of you, it may be a closet. When you've got lots of small children, it's often the toilet. (laughs) But wherever it is, it's a place where you hide and where it's you and God alone. And when Hezekiah was there alone with God, pleading with him, God heard his prayer and God answered his prayer. And this is what I want you to take away. He didn't hear his prayer and answer his prayer because he was the king. He heard his prayer and answered his prayer because he was king. You understand that? If you were to write that down, it's, he didn't hear his prayer and answer his prayer because he, little H, was king, Hezekiah, He heard his prayer and answered his prayer because he, capital H, was King Yahweh. That's the reality. Makes me think of that passage early in the book of Exodus where the Jews are there and they're they're, they're just burdened on slavery and the burden gets greater and the burden gets greater and it finally reaches the point where they just cry out and say, have you forgotten us? And God, according to Exodus, God says, ah, yeah, and he remembered them. You know, and and if you read that text, you could you could almost be excused for thinking like God was somehow like you know like some I don't know absent-minded cook who's got some pots boiling on the stove, and he's and he's like, oh yes, I forgot about the Israelites over there in Egypt. Again, anthropomorphic terminology. The reality is, is that God often allows His people to go through great trials 
so that we cry out to him. And I think that it's hard for us when we, we hear, see a passage with an expression like, he wept bitterly, and we, and we don't see time. We, we see principles, but not time. Did Hezekiah go to his room one day and weep bitterly? And then he's like, ah, I've done the bitter weeping, we're all good here. And he just cracks on with his life. And then, or maybe, maybe he's there weeping and there's a knock on the door and it's Isaiah. I don't think that happened at all. The, the passage here is giving us principles, not t- a timeline. Isaiah has had to go away and Isaiah is then sent back again. I have no doubt that when Hezekiah wept before that wall, that he then on another day wept again. And on another day wept again. And on another day wept again. I know I've had times when I've wept before God and screamed before God and said, how much more weeping does there need to be? Or as the psalmist so often put it, how long, O Lord? And for those of us who've wept bitterly, for those of us who've cried out, there is contained in verse 4 some of the most beautiful words of Scripture. I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. Friends, he might not say to you, I will add 15 years to your life. He might not say to you, I will remove this suffering that you're pleading for. He might not say to you, I will fix this problem that is causing you such hurt. He might not say to you, I will make everything the way you want. But he always says, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. And for some, the weeping is long. For some, the weeping is extended and painful. Sometimes the weeping goes on so long that the tears dry up, but the weeping continues silently inside. And for some, the weeping is only ended by death itself. And as we walk through these times, however extended they might be, I pray, I I truly, truly pray and hope that the words, I have heard your prayers and I have seen your tears, is something that we cling on to. And and I think, and, and I might be wrong, but I think that in these words, we have the very heart of the acknowledgement in lament and the importance of acknowledgement in lament. Because if we do not acknowledge our pain, if we don't have the liberty to cry out in frustration, then how do we have a God who can then turn to us and say, I have heard your prayers and I have seen your tears? 
If we go to some, some erstwhile biblical counsellor who says, oh, you shouldn't be speaking in those terms, oh, that's not, strictly speaking, theologically accurate, or, oh, I, I, think you've, I think you've had enough tears now, maybe we need to turn to the scripture, then how do we get to the point where we can hear those words and they can resonate in our soul if we haven't had a chance to express ourselves? And I am so thankful that though human counsellors may often fail, and though those who would seek to help often cause harm, that our God always welcomes the acknowledgement of our pain. And our God always hears our prayers and sees our tears. Or as Peter says, we cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. All that to say, before we move on from this passage, that a request is granted, 15 years to your life. That to me is bizarre. You're about to die and and God says, you can have 15 more years. He knows he's not getting 14 and he knows he's not getting 16. So maybe he could have a freeway ministry for 15 years, I don't know. But he knows he isn't getting the 16th either. That makes the person focus. I think when you're young, you think you're going to live forever. Of course, you know, intellectually you won't, but life just seems so long. And then, you know, I just had another birthday last week, and I've got one more, and then I hit the big 5-0. Man, you're faced with the reality that, you know, I mean, I'm still hoping that the, the, sec- that the, ne- the next stage after 50 is longer than the first half, but I'm aware that the odds are short. And you start to think, what have, what have I done? What have I accomplished? And things like that. Guys in particular, we're prone to that. But do we want our lives to count for God? I keep emphasizing to you guys how we are all ministers. Do you want your ministry to make a difference? Do you have a ministry? If you're a Christian and you're breathing, you still do. That's why you're still breathing. And so I think that we need to be aware that this is an astonishing thing that is said, just in a very practical sense, in that he knows he has more time, and he knows exactly how much time he has. But also along with that, there is the assurance that not only will he live, but he will be delivered, and the city will be delivered. And so the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, will be, not be successful. If this did chronologically come before the previous chapters, isn't that an even more shocking thing? That God has said to him, this city will not fall to Sennacherib, and yet he's still trusting in Egypt. But doesn't it give more light to the fact of why he was then able to say, at this point I will trust in Yahweh? that he was able to recognize that his trust in Egypt was false, that was sinful, and he was able to repent, and he was able to turn. Now, you say, well, that's kind of easy for him. He knew he was going to live. God had told him he was going to live. He knew that they weren't going to get defeated by the Assyrians. God told him they weren't going to get defeated by the Assyrians. So he really shouldn't have failed. He shouldn't have trusted in Egypt. And really, it's not that big a deal of him finally doing it, because God told him. He sent Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet went and said, thus says Yahweh, and he knew. 
Oh, we need to realize we are, we are throwing stones with our glass houses at that point because we have an awful lot of things that God has delivered to us through his prophets. An awful lot of assurances. No, I don't know when I'm going to die. And no, I don't know that the thing that I fear may not, won't happen, because it may. But I do know that God will never leave me nor forsake me. I do know that he works all things together for my good. I do know that he loves me and cares for me. And I do know that in the midst of trials, he's working out his purposes in my life. And yet whenever I fall into trials, I'm always tempted to disregard those truths and to live as if they're not true. Aren't we all? So are we not the same as Hezekiah? God gives us assurances and we go out into life and things look scary and they seem more real than the assurances that God has given us. This is why we are people of the word. We are reminded of God, of what he says, of what he does, that we might trust him and that we might bow before his word. For Hezekiah, there was, so that he would trust the word of God, remember, eventually he didn't, but so that he would trust the word of God, he was given a sign. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, from Yahweh, that Yahweh will do this thing that he has promised. Notice the repetition of Yahweh. Yahweh is saying this, and Yahweh will do this. In other words, the basis of this is the character of God. It is the character of God that is the basis of the assurance that this will come to pass. And so the sign is this. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, turn back ten steps. And so, in a very matter-of-fact way, we're told, the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Now, in the account of this in 2 Kings chapter 20, um, he's given actually a choice. And Hezekiah says to Isaiah, what will be the sign? And he... And Isaiah says, this shall be the sign to you from Yahweh that Yahweh will do the thing he's promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or back ten steps? Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. So, those of you with digital watches, you might not be quite so familiar, but uh, in the days of sundials, they told the time because of where the sun was in the sky. And as the sun moved, so the, the, the shadow passed and so the dials went. So will the sign be the moving forward of time quickly? Hezekiah says, that's much more easy. Ten steps forward, boom. Here's the shadow, boom, there it goes forward. It's like, you know, maybe God puts me to sleep or something like that, you know, and uh, that's a little bit easier. But to make it go back ten steps, now that will be impressive. That will be a sign. Now, I want you to see, because Isaiah wants us to see, the contrast here between him and his father Ahaz. We talked about these contrasts in previous chapters. Ahaz was offered the sign and he feigned a false spirituality by refusing to take the sign, which was in fact an expression of his lack of trust in God. Hezekiah, who wants to trust in God and is trying to place his trust in God, wants to have that assurance. And so he, according to the king's account, he is the one who asks for the sign Isaiah here, we tell, we're told, gives him the sign, and Hezekiah chooses 
the declining sun, the sun going backwards, and that is the sign that is given to him. Now, at this point, we might be tempted to say, okay, Anthony, you're trying to draw these parallels. I understand that we're not told that we'll get 15 extra years. We're not assured that the the things that we fear won't happen. But we don't get this either. In, In other words, when we hope that God will do something good for us, we don't get some sign. I mean, what is this? Here's Hezekiah being told, you've got 15 more years, the city won't fall. How do I know this is going to be? You trust me, I'm Yahweh, I'm Yahweh, and Yahweh says this to you. This is the word of Yahweh. He's emphasizing who he is, his character, his name, and he says, I'm going to make this miracle happen, and this miracle to you will be a sign and proof so that you know that this will be true. We've seen this with his father Ahaz. Ahaz was, asking for, uh, was offered a sign, he refused it. He didn't get a sign. But the house of David got a sign. And the sign of the house of David was the virgin birth. Now, you say, well, we don't get guarantees. And you're right, in a sense we don't. But in another sense we do. You say, well, we don't get signs. And you're right, in a sense, we don't. But in another sense, we do. You see, the repetition of the name Yahweh here is a way of associating the character of God. That God is loving and faithful. There are these two key Hebrew terms that refer to the covenant nature of God that we translate into English as, as covenant love and faithfulness or truthfulness. That God says something and it can be trusted. Because God keeps his word, that his love, his choosing is faithful and trustworthy. And so he says, I'm going to do this. And when I do this, you'll know that I can do it, that I will do it, and that I'll do what I say. You want me to, I, I'm going to put the clock back? I'll put the clock back. Now you know when I say 15 years, I mean 15 years. And when I mean the city won't fall, the city won't fall. God has given to us promises that go way beyond this. Peter speaks about those promises as being an inheritance, a living hope. There are things that are true for us, both in this life and in the life to come, that are breathtaking. That God has given to us his Holy Spirit that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead might work through us that we might be sanctified and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That, That when we pass, that he will give us a glorified body that no longer ages, that's no longer corrupt, that no longer has sin within it, that we might be able to be glorified and live the sinless lives that God desires for us to live. That that though we might pass from this life, that we have eternal life, and that death, though it be physical, is not spiritual. And that when Christ returns to redeem this world, we return with him to enjoy him in his kingdom. That's some pretty good promises, right? What's the sign for us that God can be trusted and that God can do this? Here's the sign. The sign, not one here, is there? Where is it behind me? There's the sign of the cross. There you go. 
Sign of the cross. That's the sign. Let me, let me end with this thought. I've, I've had many days, for many years, of bitter weeping. I've had years when the pain was so great that I was barely able to function or think. I've had times when I just didn't know I was going to be able to continue in this life. I've known the very depths of despair. I've known the very bottom of the pit. But even in the darkest of times, when I'm not able to function, I'm not sure of anything, when my mind's a mess, when the promises of God seem distant and remote, I've always been able to go to the cross. And I don't understand why God allows people to suffer so much. I don't understand why I was in the circumstances I was in. I didn't understand why I had to go through the pain I went through. I didn't know any of it. And it forced me to to rethink anything and everything and my theology that I never questioned had to be questioned and I was in a complete state but I could look at the cross and I could say this I know I know that Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sins and that means that he cares for me and that means he can be trusted. This is the same conclusion that John came to in his gospel, in that glorious prologue at the beginning of his gospel, where he talks of the incarnation, and he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When John speaks of Jesus being full of grace and truth, those two things, grace and truth, that is John's way in Greek of expressing the Hebrew concept of that covenant-keeping love and that covenant-keeping faithfulness that is so often repeated in the Old Testament. And he says that Jesus is the fullness of that. That's the declaration of a deity of Christ right there. If, if God, Yahweh, is the covenant-keeping God, the God of love and faithfulness, then Jesus is the fullest expression of that love and faithfulness, that grace and truth. So my encouragement to you tonight is this. If you walk through tears, if you're forced into that prayer closet before the wall, to cry out to God. Know a few things. Take these things away with you tonight. Firstly, he hears your prayers and he sees your tears. Secondly, those prayers aren't wasted because not only does he hear them, he can change anything. He can turn anything. He can accomplish anything anything. He can do anything. So cry out to him. 
because he is capable and he cares. But thirdly, when we don't get the answers we want, look to the sign that was given. Look to the cross and know that he can be trusted. You may not understand. You may not like what you're going through. But he can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the sign that supersedes all other signs. When Israel asked for a sign, again and again they were told they would be given no other than the sign of Jonah. The son of man would be in the belly of the earth for three days and would rise on the third day. And that indeed is the sign to us. The death of Christ in our place for our sins and his resurrection and conquering of death stands for us as a sign that we can trust you, that you who can do all things, you who created heaven and earth, you who sustain heaven and earth and everything in it, that you care for us, that you would die for us. And so help us to trust you. And Lord, may we be faithful. May we not be found like Hezekiah to trust in Egypt, to place our trust elsewhere. But may we learn what it is to trust in you. I thank you, God, that when we fail, you forgive and you give us opportunities to trust you again. All glory to your holy name. Amen. Amen.